I'm Annie Apple, and I'm here to invite you to come and listen to my new podcast series, Raising April. It's the most intimate sports-related conversations you will hear. Each week, we explore the journeys of some of your favorite NFL players through the eyes of those that know them best. From Joe Burr, DeAndre Hopkins, Miles Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, Nick and Joey Boza, just to name a few. With exclusive insights and information, we leave no stone unturned. Subscribe now to Raising a Pro on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, books editor, Hindustan Times, and I'm with Ira Mukhoti, whose lovely book Daughters of the Sun is just out. Thank you. It's about empresses, queens, and begums of the Mughal Empire. So maybe we should read a little bit yeah. of the flap. Um, in 1526, when the nomadic Timurid warrior scholar Babur rode into Hindustan, his wives, sisters, daughters, aunts, and distant female relatives travelled with him. These women would help establish a dynasty and empire that would rule India for the next 200 years and become a byword for opulence and grandeur. By the second half of the 17th century, the Mughal Empire was one of the largest and richest in the world. The Mughal women, unmarried daughters, eccentric sisters, fiery milk mothers, and powerful wives, often worked behind the scenes and from within the zenana. But there were some notable exceptions among them, who rode into battle with their men. Built stunning monuments, engaged in diplomacy, traded with foreigners, and minted coins in their own names. Others wrote biographies and patronized the arts. In the Daughters of the Sun, we meet remarkable characters like Khanzada Begum, who at 65 rode on horseback through 750 kilometers of icy passes and unforgiving terrain to parley on behalf of her nephew Humayun. Gulbadan Begum, who gave us the only document written by a woman of the Mughal royal court. A rare glimpse into the harem, as well as a chronicle of the trials and tribulations of three emperors: Babur, Humayun, and Akbar, her father, brother, and nephew. Akbar's milk mothers or foster mothers, Jiji Anaga and Maham Anaga, 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 I think, yeah, who shielded and guided the 13-year-old emperor until he came of age. Noor Jahan, light of the world, a widow and mother who would become Jahangir's last and favorite wife, acquiring an imperial legacy of her own, and so it goes on. So they all these like fascinating women, and she's you know, and I'm really amazed that nobody else has written a book about them. You know, why do you think that is? Yes, I think it it is a real lapse in in our history, and I think Indian history per se hasn't been written uh, about the way it should be, and women in Indian history definitely have been ignored. In uh, perhaps uh, I don't know, there are academic works out there, you know, dealing with certain aspects of these women, but there hasn't been a concerted effort. to examine the lives of these women and understand the zenana and what it really was uh, through these 200 years of history and i think it's it's a general feeling in india that those stories of women are somehow in some way less important and don't need to be validated in in the same way as that of of men perhaps but you know also what i found fascinating about this and you mentioned it even in in your introduction about how the idea of the zenana our idea of the zenana of the harem is was sort of like created by the europeans But the European view, as it being this highly sexualized space, where the I don't know emperors going crazy with all these women, when actually this is like an extended family. Some of them might be his wives and his concubines, but largely it's like sisters, 
aunts, mothers, stepmothers, yeah. you know. That's right. And that was a real discovery for me as well. You know, I didn't have an exact idea of what uh, a harem was, but certainly it was the one you were talking about of, you know, a male figure with lots of women uh, dancing in attendance on him. And you just think of sex, actually. Actually, you do, right? <laughs> and and harem, no doubt yeah. the European women, men were thinking that. And they were yeah. like, wow, how beautiful must these women be? And, you know, I wish I could get to see behind the veil. And they were obsessed with this uh, desire to see behind the veil. And so they created this sort of fantasy world which we have inherited in our post-colonial yes. you know, imagination. But it was, as you say, almost like an extended Indian family, maybe many times so, but a, a, just a congregation of women, and young children, and extended uh, widowed members of the family and guests passing through. And it was this kind of boisterous, chaotic space, you know, which was not really just about or mostly not about sex at all. At all. Yes. It's domesticity. Yes. Some of the Jesuits, in fact, wrote in a very wondering way that, you know, Akbar has so many women but so few children. They were implying that there's not a great deal of sexual contact happening with all these women. So what is going on? You know, they could not understand that these women were not sexually available women to Akbar, you know. They were his family members. Yeah. So that, that was something which was very interesting for me to study the development of this zanana. It's like the Indian joint family multiplied. Multiplied, exactly. A <laughs> hundred times over. Yeah. Though the, the earlier kings of Kof didn't have these extensive, uh, you know, harems. It's really from the time of Akbar onwards. Khanzada Begum, uh, the sister of um, Babur. She actually gets abducted, yes. right, and then comes back and then is sent back 10 years later after she's yes. uh, been through th two marriages. Yes. But there's no, but she becomes really, she's considered powerful. She's, uh, you know, she's a powerful figure for yeah. many years. Yeah. So there was no, unlike at the same time, you mentioned it too, uh, you know, Rajputs and the rest of India yeah. were, were like putting a very high price yeah. on chastity and, exactly. you know, exactly. uh, exclusivity and, yeah. you know, preferring Johar and yeah. Sati to uh, remarriage, to yeah. widow remarriage. Yeah. So, you know, that that's very fascinating. Talk about that. One of the reasons I chose to write about uh, Khanzada in such in depth was that I was amazed at not only was there no stigma attached to her, but she was rewarded for having made this choice and this sacrifice for her brother, for her family, for the Timurid legacy. And she was made uh, the Padshah Begin, which was the most respected woman of her time. Mm. So not only was there no stigma around the whole issue of sexual chastity, it was uh, something that was deeply appreciated and they were very loving towards her and respectful towards her. And ex her exact contemporary, the, the Rajputs at the same time, were burning their women at this, you know, when they were faced... Um, with death and dishonor because everything was placed on the sexual chastity of the women. They were not considered to have a mind, to have a thinking body. It was all about sexual purity. So it was very refreshing to see that the Mughals, maybe coming from Central Asia with their nomadic customs, did not put that kind of emphasis only on a woman's sexual you know, uh, availability and purity. Those were very free to remarry, were encouraged to remarry so that they were not left without... Nur Jaha yes. was a widow. Right? Nur Jaha was famously a widow. And uh, so, in fact, many of the women uh, were encouraged to remarry when they were widowed. There was no stigma attached to having a second or a third husband or to having fallen in battle by, you know, being taken by other enemies. And they were always respected and accepted back into the fold when they were able to get away. So when um, Babur finally won the Battle of Panipat and established his empire, he sent a letter out saying, every uh, Timurid person is going to be a guest in Hindustan and I invite all of you to come. So many widows and many uh, women who had lost their men or who had had to, who had been abducted, who had been taken by the enemy, were able to escape and find a place of safety with Babur. So these are things one doesn't think about. It's so complex and it's like so, the, these are aspects of the lives of these people that have not been, I don't know, 
they haven't been uh, I, i think they've been completely ignored and there's been a certain i suppose uh, laziness and we've just accepted the interpretations that we have received from the you know the english writings because there's quite a bit of oriental writing around yes. the harem you know and also there were many english visitors uh, adventurers and um, merchants who came to india during the time of the moguls and wrote extensively so they are easily available to us because they're in english where some of the other documents are in persian or in urdu and have become inaccessible to us because now you know we don't read persian and urdu in the way that we used to so it's kind of easy to read the english account and absorb that so we've been a little bit lazy and complacent and i haven't gone beyond this given um, you know narrative to understand really what it was all about you know what i find fascinating about some bits of your book is that how these characters were like long dead 300 400 years ago you still managed to like pick out little bits about their character and um, highlight that and it makes you laugh like as as the reader you know the yeah. jokes that sort of people back then might have laughed at like rose mustache and yes, his general uh, outfit and you you say that they looked through the zananas jolly and laughed and they were probably laughing at him that's and right and they probably were that's right that's what <laughs> i figured she must have seen him with his ruffles around his neck you know and his mustache flying up like that and mughal nobleman when these long you know kabas and the hair and the turban she must have thought what is this preening india doing in my court you know wherever possible as you say i have tried to use the exact words of women if they are available to us and they are available in certain texts like gulbadan's uh, biography mm. so for me as a writer of this book um, these kind of sources have been invaluable and i have used them wherever i could because i feel that gives us a true sense of what the women really were like because if we hear their voices then we understand that they were not so very different from us you know yes right yes. you feel That's a sense exactly of connection they actually have the same griefs and the same hopes and ambitions and aspirations as we do you know yes. when the wife sometimes uh, feel upset because humayun has gone to see some other wife or his yes. sister why are you seeing yes. your sister rather yeah. than me i mean isn't this something we would think about even today yes so i feel that you know, it, that you know, scene where you mention i think one of the begums uh, i can't remember her name she uh, pulls him up for uh, pulls him bigger ha bigger begum was bigger of, begum. often pulling up humayun <laughs> for this yes <laughs> Why did you not come and meet me? Yes, uh, she and and she's quoted by Mughal. Clearly, like such sharp words to the Mughal padshah. She wouldn't even do it. No, I know. <laughs> But in front of all the other begums and all the attendants, she's saying, you know, there are no thorns in my, the path to my house. Why aren't you coming to my house? You know, and I found that so poignant because you can really understand the woman. Yeah. And it didn't mean that Humayun loved her less or that uh, she was highly respected. And she was so loyal to his memory that she. built the humayun's tomb yes so you know uh, there's uh, she's a very multi-layered textured and interesting woman to to read about and even gulbadan you know talk about gulbadan and yes. her uh, uh, you know her she was uh, she was this amazing amazing woman you know we uh, we encounter her for the first time around 7 or 6 or 7 years old when she is riding into hindustan from kabul to join mm. babur who has just uh, established his nascent empire and she meets her father again after i think a distance of a few years you know and mm-hmm. she writes so movingly about meeting mm-hmm. her father again and that she he held her in his arms and you think of oh, babur you know yeah we all kind of think oh the, the marauder maybe you know or this conquering yes. hero yeah. whichever way but not as a tender father so anyhow she comes she meets him and she spends many years you know that with babur and babur dies early and she is with humayun and with humayun the first few years they are journeying all over hindustan because he gets you know uh, as we know evicted from india very early on um, but when they come back uh, they are all reunited and many many years later when akbar is king he comes to gulbadan and says write down all your memories of my father humayun 
and even Babur, whatever you remember. And she writes this extraordinarily vivid account um, of her father, you know, and of their travails and their journeys, and herself riding everywhere on horseback, you know, with her family. And then having written this, um, or I think before this, she goes on a hajj for seven years, and it's an all-woman hajj. So there is a chaperone because you cannot go anywhere without a male at that time, but it is an all-women party. She's the head of this party and she goes for seven, you know, tumultuous years and she has all kinds of adventures. And it seems that even when she comes back after seven years, she's reluctant to go back home to the court. And uh, the biographer writes that she keeps making unnecessary journeys to go to Chishti, <laughs> to go to Ajmer. You know, like, what is she doing? Oh, God, after, go back home. Do I have to? Like, after seven years, are they bringing me back to court, you know? And when she goes back to court, she's extremely... Um, surprised to find that there are all these Jesuit missionaries. They've come in the time that she was away. And Gulbadan, along with Hamida Banu, sort of make the atmosphere difficult enough for the Jesuits that they have to leave. Mm. So look at the power that they have, you know, they, yeah. they're able to influence um, the missionary embassy to, to the court. Yeah. And so she lived for many, many years and wrote her biography and had a very adventurous life. And, and then really was forgotten about till the early uh, 20th century her book was translated and um, you know we, we found out about her but i feel that it has still been very underutilized yes. and we still need to find out more yeah, about her yeah. through her writing you know i felt completely ignorant when i first heard you know when i read yes, the book yes. and i heard about yeah. i said why isn't this out there you know more it isn't it isn't i i hope people read and i hope people have the same reaction that it's so fun to read about these women and you know discover them maybe for the first time or at least discover aspects of them like noor jahan i was initially quite hesitant to write about her i thought maybe i won't write about her at all you know but then I thought, okay i'll write about her but let me try and find a different angle to let us see her let us see her not just as this you know, supposedly a woman who had Jahangir in her sexual thrall, because that's what's Im implied by the English mm -hmm. writings, you know. Mm -hmm. Why was this woman so well, powerful? She was much more intelligent than that, she was, just a sex object. She was not at all. She mm -hmm. was, in fact, very smart, very talented and very ambitious and had a fantastic aesthetic sense, which aligned exactly with the way Jahangir saw the future of uh, Mughal art. And he was very interested in art. And her sense of aesthetics was matched his exactly. So when he was unable to do very much, he was a, you know, a drinker and an opium addict. So when he felt out of sorts and was unable to, to do very much, she took over this role and she made sure that there were amazing banquets and feasts and there were artists who were being encouraged and she developed different kinds of cloths, you know. So she contributed in ways far more complex than we imagine. And one final question, who's your favorite Mughal woman? That's, that's a really tough one because, uh, you know, you feel so um, fond of all these women when you do so much, I think. But I probably have a, have a soft spot for Khanzada Begum. Okay. You know, she's one of the furthest yeah. in time, but yet she feels so alive and immediate. Okay, great. And she's like a real hero. She is. Horseback. Horseback riding. Being sacrificed correct. to save her brother's life. Correct, correct. Enduring, I don't know, must have been terrible being married to him. Must have been this Uzbek warlord, you know, how yeah. did he treat her, forced marriage, you know. But 10 years and, and you never hear uh, that there was any, you know, that she had any issue with that or that it was a problem for her. You know, mm. she just went on and, and was the most respected woman. Mm. Uh, I've got to do court. it. <laughs> ah, that's it, Naya. <laughs> okay, so Ida, thank you so thank much you. for, you know, speaking to me. Thanks very and much. This is really a good book. It's very interesting. Opens your eyes to a lot, lots of things. and makes you, uh, you know, look at your own maybe prejudices. Perhaps, yes. You know, and ideas about uh, women of a certain cultural background, of a, um, of a certain time even. Correct. You know, you, we think that we're so liberated, but hey. I think these, especially the early, early women, yes. far more liberated. Them. Correct. You can't read them. <laughs> 
This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. I'm Annie Apple, and I'm here to invite you to come and listen to my new podcast series, Raising April. It's the most intimate sports-related conversations you will hear. Each week, we explore the journeys of some of your favorite NFL players through the eyes of those that know them best. From Joe Burrow, DeAndre Hopkins, Miles Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, Nick and Joey Boza, just to name a few. With exclusive insights and information, we leave no stone unturned. Subscribe now to Raising a Pro on your favorite podcast app.